is taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Last week we started uh, a short series in the run-up to Easter on Ephesians. It's sort of uh, my homage to Tim Keller, who announced that he was stepping down uh, this spring uh, after leading me and many people to Christ at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And the first sermon I ever heard before I was a Christian, when I was still thinking about it, was... I'm putting on this armor, putting uh, on the armor of God and, and what it meant to stand for something, what it's meant to stand for faith, for belief. Um, so we're looking at this from the perspective of what the different elements of armor are all about. Paul is using a metaphor here, comparing the things that defend our faith and allow us to stand with the armor that a Roman soldier looked at, uh, sorry, a Roman soldier wore when he went to battle. In this case, the metaphor is not about attacking and stomping on people's heads and killing and maiming. The emphasis is on protecting what is precious within, our faith, our belief. Standing firm, just standing up, that's all Christ is asking us to do here. Um, this passage is the sixth chapter of a letter that Paul wrote to a church he planted in Ephesus. And if you go to your Bible, to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, which is the history book of the church, you can read about what happened to him in Ephesus. The whole chapter of 19 is devoted to his experiences and the battle that he had, the spiritual battles that he had in Ephesus. He went there and for three months, preached in the synagogue until... Uh, the Jews there got fed up with him and threw him out. But the people who listened to him, he began a lecture series. And for two years, he preached the gospel in Ephesus before forming a church. Uh, and so this letter is the letter that he writes to this church after he's left. He creates a church. He brings together a group of people. They're in this town, Ephesus, which is devoted to the goddess Artemis. And... They are constantly challenged spiritually. And so this letter is Paul's way of strengthening them, explaining to them what it means to stand for something. 
Now, before looking at the armor, we have to talk a little bit about the notion of the devil. Because a lot of modern people think that that notion is ridiculous. That the whole idea of spiritual warfare is ridiculous. Um, we saw last week that the essence of evil is denying God and claiming our own authority to do what we want. My will be done, not thy will be done. But it's more than that. It's more than belief. It is also, the Bible claims, a spiritual battle. According to the Bible, not only was there a rebellion amongst human beings, Adam and Eve, that caused the sin in the world, but there was a spiritual rebellion. And Satan, an angel, and those that followed him, fell, were cast out of heaven, and became part of a spiritual battle in this world. A rebellion against God. A rebellion that starts with a whisper in Eve's ear, can you really trust God? Did he really say that? That attempts to undermine everything that Christians are, everything the church stands for, everything that the gospel is. And there are two dangers when we think about spiritual warfare, when we think about Satan or the devil. The first is to underestimate the reality of this battle, to pretend that it's not real, to make the devil ridiculous, you know, the, the guy in red tights and horns that comes out at Halloween, to underestimate the struggle that we're actually in. One of the great scandals of Christianity is how many Christian leaders fall to temptation. Money, sex, power, that betray the trust placed in them. <laughs> is that the Satan? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> betray the trust placed in them because they start to run on their own strength rather than... God's strength. You know, notice how this begins. In, stand in the Lord's power, not in your own. I have known several of these um, pastors and typically, and leaders, and typically they're very successful. They're skillful, they're charismatic, they've got boundless energy and great ideas. But because of that success, they, they underestimate their need to continue to pray to continue to cultivate their relationship with God first, to make that their foundation. And over time, they become exhausted or hubris sets in. They begin to do things because they think, well, look at how successful my ministry is. I'm allowed to do things that other people are not because I'm such a great Christian. And they fall. And their ministry is full, and many people are hurt and bruised by the experience. The church is scandalized. The Christian witness is obscured. It is evil. Underestimating the power of spiritual warfare is a huge problem. But there's another problem. Overestimating the devil's power, Satan's power. Seeing him under every setback, under every problem that we have. The thing to remember, and probably this is one of the most important things you can remember from this sermon series. The devil is a spiritual being, yes, 
He's not a material being like us. But he is not equal in power to God. The devil, Satan, was created by God just like we were. And he, just like we, are in rebellion against God. So what does that mean, that he was created? It means that he is finite, like we are finite. God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipotent. The devil is not. We are fighting a finite, although very powerful, created being. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the Bible, the devil actually tempts very few people. Six or seven people in the whole Bible. He is not out there tempting everybody all the time. Because he's finite. He can't be everywhere at once, the way God is, omnipresent. The devil does not know your thoughts. He's not inside your head. Whereas God is. God knows every thought and every word and everything we do and think and say before we even say it. That's not true of the devil. And so he is powerful, he is dangerous, but he is finite, and he is not out of God's control. If you read the book of Job, the devil has to show up when God asks him to. We are in a battle. It is significant and it is important, but we do not have to be afraid. Because the one we serve is the only one who is infinite in power. And he is right there at the very center of our being. And when his Holy Spirit is present in our life, we are safe. That's the promise of scripture. Nevertheless, Paul does say, the Bible does say, there will be an evil day. In your life, in my life. A day when we doubt God's goodness or God's love. Where we're filled with fear or anger. Maybe anger at God because of something terrible that's just happened to us. When we're dealing with sickness or tragedy or death or a broken dream. It will happen. We live in a broken world amongst broken people. And we are the most broken of all. So Paul is saying here... Before that day comes, and it will come, put on the armor. Because you don't put on the armor in the middle of a battle. You've got to get ready first. So let's have a look at it. I'm going to look particularly this morning at the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in place. Stand firm. Remember, this is a metaphor. Paul is saying, this is how you defend yourself so you can stand firm. This is not about jihad or holy war or going off on a crusade and killing people. It is a metaphor about spiritual protection. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, This is actually an odd translation. Uh, Literally, in the Greek it says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. 
I suppose NIV thought nobody knows what it means to gird your loins. I didn't. What does it mean to gird your loins? Well, it was an actual practice, a thing that you had to do back in the day. Most people wore robes, and they would have a, a girdle or a belt or something, a sash wrapped around the waist, but they would wear a long flowing robe, just as many people do in the Middle East now. And that's kind of clumsy. If you try to do anything, wearing a long robe, wearing a skirt, it's going to get messy. It's going to get entangled in your feet. So you gird your loins. That is, you gather up the excess and pull it into a bunch at the front so everything is tight around the back. You got a bunch of cloth, and then you pass that back through your legs and pull it up tight behind, just like you're wearing shorts. And then you tuck the ends into your belt or your girdle or the, the fabric that's wrapped around your waist. So you're kind of wearing shorts. It was a way of getting your robe up out of the way to provide freedom of movement. And so to tell someone to gird their loins essentially means get ready for hard work. Get ready to do something. Get ready for battle. Make sure there's nothing that is going to get in the way, that is going to dangle down and trip you up. Tuck everything in so that you're ready for what happens. Now, particularly for soldiers, Roman soldiers, the, the belt was actually more like a, a, a leather a band or gurgle, kind of like the things you see that weightlifters use to support their backs. It wrapped around them completely, and so they tucked everything up inside it, then wrapped it around and locked everything in. It was a way of making your core solid, supporting everything else that you would put on. And so the truth, when it says, gird your loins with truth, or put on the, the belt of truth, it's saying that is what is going to support everything else. Getting rid of everything is strenuous. Focusing on what is important. Being ready for battle. To work hard. Get ready to do something. But what is truth? You know, as Herod famously said to Jesus, what is truth? Well, if you read Ephesians, and particularly if you read the chapter before this and into chapter 6, truth in the Bible is not an abstraction. Truth is how you live, what you do. The literal meaning of the word is that which is authentic, reliable, trustworthy. And if you read uh, in Ephesians, in the early part of the chapter, you read this. You were once darkness. He's talking to the Ephesians. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. He's saying this right before he talks about the armor. What is Paul saying? Truth is not just an abstraction, a philosophical idea. Truth is God. 
And to live in truth is to live a life illuminated by God. You know, famously, Jesus is the light of the world. Truth, therefore, is not an idea or an argument. Truth is living in relationship with God and the world. Living out the reality of God's presence. Living out the truth that he is your creator. You know, as Proverbs say, a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You will never make sense of your life or anybody else's life or of this world unless you acknowledge the truth that God is. He comes first. He made everything, including you. And that truth is the foundation for everything else. If you don't understand that, your life is going to be confused. Things are going to happen that you don't understand. You're not going to flourish in a world created by God if you don't recognize God. That's the point. And once again, truth is not an idea. Truth is a person. Jesus. Truth is a way of life. Right living. In fact, if you read the uh, verses right before this section in uh, chapter 6 on the armor of God, there are what's known as the household codes. These are repeated throughout the New Testament, how you should live, how you should be a husband, how you should be a wife, how should husbands and wives treat each other, how should they treat their children, how should a household run. These, by the way, were very common in the Roman world, and typically the father the patriarch was absolute Lord. His word, his will meant everything, and everybody else was subservient. And what is shocking when you read the Christian version that Paul gives is how he says everyone should serve each other and submit to each other, that you should pay attention to your children, that you should live in a way that honors who they are. So truth is how you live, how you live with each other, right living. And that is the foundation for who you are as a Christian. By the way, one of the, um, the books I read in preparation for this was one by Larry Richards. And um, he was a, a family pa- pastor, and he did a survey. He was trying to figure out all these kids that came to his classes, what was the best and most reliable contrib- contributor to a living faith? What was the best thing for a child to grow up as a Christian? And he surveyed a local school of eighth graders, and he found out it wasn't what they were taught, it wasn't their parents' approach to discipline, it wasn't family devotionals or going to church and church meetings and prayer events, it wasn't going on retreats. The number one predictor, in fact, really the only predictor of a child's faith, was their parents' faith. If the parents lived in the light of God, if the reality of God informed what they said and what they did and how they lived, if God was real to the parents and they were living out that reality, their children did too. That was the foundation of their faith. That is how 
faith typically is passed on. And that's what defines a Christian family. So when you think, when, when Paul is talking about truth, when you're thinking about this girding, don't think of some abstraction. It's very real. It's very present. It's what you say and do with those around you. What you say and do in your family. How you treat your friends. How you treat your community. How you behave at work. It is your relationships. The lived truth that God is real in my life. That is the foundation. That is what allows you to stand up. But now the breastplate. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist or the, your loins girded with truth and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. What is a breastplate? Well, typically, Roman soldiers wore metal plates on their front. And typically, they were hung on a leather garment, like a vest with a front and a back that could be tied. So they were kind of locked in. And the purpose of the breastplate is kind of equivalent of our modern bulletproof vests, is to protect the vitals, the heart and the lungs. It's so that if you are fighting off somebody with your sword and your uh, shield, some unexpected attack is going to meet this final resistance. If somebody throws a, a spear at you or shoots an arrow at you and you don't see it, your breastplate is the final line of defense. If somebody trying to sneak under your guard while you're distracted over here, the breastplate is what saves you. So it is like the final defense against your integrity, against your vitals, to allow you to stay upright. So what does it mean in, in terms of this metaphor? This, this actually is very, this is probably the most personal for me. It means that when you stand up as a Christian, as a leader, starting some ministry, whatever you do, you will be attacked. I guarantee it. And the breastplate of righteousness is your final protection. What do I mean by that? Christians are on a journey. Christians start off like everybody else, in rebellion against God, dead in their sins, alienated. Paul puts it like this in the second chapter of Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's talking about an evil spirit. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh or our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That is the human condition. Alienated from God, disobedient, following our passions wherever they lead, getting involved and entangled in all kinds of nonsense, without the Holy Spirit, without hope. That's the old self, the old nature, the old man. But then there is a new man, which we receive through Christ and the Holy Spirit. But because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you have the old self, the old man, the old nature, the transgressor, subject to death and decay, disobedient, without hope. And that's everybody. Until Jesus shows up. That's why he's called a savior. He saves us from the old man. And he gives us a new nature. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us a new relationship with God. He gives us a new name, Christians. He invites us to the family table, the table of God. He makes us right with God. That's what righteousness means. So the old man, what we used to be, and the new man, what we are becoming through Christ, the Christian journey. But there's a problem. We might become righteous in God's eyes through Christ's sacrifice when he gives us his righteousness, his right relationship with God. But we still contain within us that old life, those old habits, those old patterns. All the stuff that we have done in our past in despite of God. We carry with us our history, our reputation. It lives in the memories of our families, of our friends, of the people that we surround with, our reputation at work, in our career, in our school, even in the church. So though we are becoming this new creation, this new man, defined by the future, not by the past, defined by Christ's righteousness and not our own. In the meantime, everyone around us remembers the old man, the old Tony. All the bad habits, all the baggage, all the nonsense. And this happens to everybody. You know, when Mother Teresa, who spent her entire life taking care of the poorest people in the, in the world in Calcutta, India, when she was finally recognized by the Catholic Church in 2003, she was attacked by the secular press, in particular by uh, Christ Christopher Hitchens, a self-proclaimed atheist. He wrote a whole book on her. And he called her, Mother Teresa, a fanatic, a fundamentalist and a fraud, arguing that even more will be poor and sick if her example is followed. If Mother Teresa can be attacked for a life devoted to serving the poor, the least of the world. And I guarantee, if you ever stand up, you'll be attacked too. If you ever take God seriously and begin to witness him in your life, in your relationships, if you begin to advocate for Christian positions, start doing any kind of ministry, Try to do God's will rather than your own. Advance God's kingdom rather than your own. You will be attacked. 
Sometimes it will be by strangers. Sometimes it will be sneaky attacks by people you love or thought that you loved. Why? Because they remember the old you. And they will bring it out and they will attack you with it. You cannot be a Christian. Remember when you did this. You are not a good person. Don't tell me about God. Remember when you said this or you were involved in this. Remember this scandal, this habit, this practice. Look at who you were. Look at what you were. How can you tell me that God loves you? It's exactly the attack, by the way, that Satan used on Jesus when he was tempted in the desert. How could God possibly love such an ugly person as you? Such a sinner as you? Somebody who has done what you've done, and you know what you've done. It is the hardest part of being a Christian leader. People that you think are your friends, or people that actually are your friends, part of your family, people that you love, if you say something that they don't like, they will jump on you. They will stick the knife where you're most vulnerable. And the trouble is, they're right. You really did those things. You really are a wicked transgressor. You're unwholesome. You're unholy. Everything about you calls for wrath and judgment and attack. Unless you have Christ's righteousness. What does that mean? It means before you stand up, and this, by the way, is a good reason for, you, for new Christians not to stand up. Before you stand up, Make sure you know deep down in your heart that God loves you. That that's why he sent Jesus. That Jesus came to take our place, to take my place. Don't make it an abstraction. Always make it about you. This is one time and place you should be selfish. Jesus didn't die for the world in some kind of general universal way. He died for you. He looked at you and your life and all your wretchedness and he said, I want you forever. I want to make you and God right. And therefore, I'm going to take everything that is not right from your life and I'm going to put it on myself and I'm going to put it to death. That's why he went to the cross. He goes in your place, bearing your sin and your unrighteousness, every scrap of it, Until, as we saw last week, it is finished. It is paid for. It is expunged. We are washed clean of our past. That's why we baptize children. We're invited to the table. Because we are no longer unwholesome in God's sight. We're part of the family. We can call God Father. You have to believe and know that. Not just an idea. That has to be the foundation of who you are. You have to live in the light of that and stew in it and think about it and pray about it and talk about it for quite a while. I'm not going to say how long, but it takes quite a while to know the truth that it is not your righteousness at stake. It is Jesus. And he is perfect. And when you stand up in his name, it is his perfection 
that you are counting on, that's going to protect you, that is going to resist those barbs and attacks. Paul said this in Romans. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. If you believe that God is real and that you are a child of God, then it does not matter what anybody else has to say about you. You are already in his good opinion. You are made right with him because of what Christ did. And therefore, you do not have to fear anymore assaults on your character when you stand up. In God's eyes, you are defined by what you are becoming, Christ-like, not by what you were. You are on a journey. It is not defined by the baggage of the past, but by the future. And as long as you follow and you keep your eyes on that, you don't have to fear any assault. It'll still hurt when people you love attack you, but it won't destroy you. It won't reach the vitals of your faith, your life. Because right there is the Holy Spirit. And right there is your identity in relationship with God. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the breastplate of righteousness. And when you wear that, you can be fearless. Because there is nothing in all creation including the devil, remember, he's a created being just like you, there is nothing in all creation that has the power to destroy you. Not even death. There is nothing that you should be afraid of. There is no place you should be afraid to go. No person that you should be afraid to confront if they're not speaking the truth. Nothing in your life that you're not willing to reveal to those around you. Living in the light And the more you do it, the more Christ-like you become. And at some point, if God is real in your life, he's going to ask you to stand up. You'll begin to hear and experience what I've just said. And remember that foundation. Jesus is your Lord. He went to the cross for you. And he gives you his perfect right relationship with God and therefore there's nothing to fear let me end by reading Romans 2 again by the way we're going to go to the Lord's table in a moment we're going to come before God the only reason you can do that with confidence is because this is true if we went before God in our natural state of unrighteousness we would burn up But because of what Christ has done, we can go to the Lord's table with confidence. Anyway, Romans.
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for, for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Right now, as we continue to worship, we're going to receive an offering.